Ski, Shoot, Repeat, a biathlon podcast, hosted by Lizzie Boyle. Episode 25. Sisters are doing it for themselves. in the forests of Lorraine or Normandy, or perhaps on a mountain track in the Pyrenees, be careful. You might find Les Dames Blanches, the White Ladies. These ladies lurk in narrow places, ravines, forests, bridges, and wait for you to come along. A Dame Blanche will ask you to join her in a dance, or help her in some way in order to continue your journey. At a ravine near Bayer in Normandy, if you refused to dance, you'd be thrown into the thistles. Meanwhile, on a bridge in Falaise, you could only pass if you went on your knees to the White Lady. If you did not, you would be tormented by cats, owls or hobgoblins. The lesson of this is that it's really hard to get past a French woman if she doesn't want you to. Last weekend in Oberhof, the French women just decided not to let anyone past, and it was something quite special to behold. Welcome to episode 25 of Ski Shoot Repeat, in which we celebrate Les Bleus, the French women's biathlon team, and talk about some great French women of the past as well. This might be a different episode from Standard, but honestly, they deserve it. So let's dive right in. Oberhof brought us massive crowds, lots of cheering, and a DJ who plays some of the most distracting music imaginable. It also brought us atrocious conditions. The men's sprint was postponed by 24 hours because of fog, wind and rain. It was well above freezing too, which meant the tracks, which were the only snow around, became very slushy and much harder to ski in for all. The weather eased a bit on Friday and again at the weekend for the pursuits and relays, but conditions still led to a lot of discussion about the suitability of lower altitude venues for winter sports in a changing climate. It's a debate that will continue to run. Oberhof has been visited by snow in the two days since the racing, so sometimes it's a matter of luck and timing. It's also a matter of knowing the probabilities though, and the probabilities say that things will only get warmer. To the racing. The men. I thought this episode was going to be about the Norwegian men, picking up on some of last week's themes about the fall of dynasties, the cycle of decline and regrowth, and a big metaphor for what might be happening with Johannes Tingesbo in the face of competition, not from his familiar teammates, but from a bunch of young upstarts with something to prove. That's not what this episode is about, simply because of those French women. However, it's worth bearing in mind when we look at the results from Oberhof. In the men's sprint, it was Benny Doll who was best able to navigate the slush and the miserable conditions ahead of an improving Sturraholm Ligrid and one of those upstarts, Andre Stromsheim. Johannes Tingesbo 
came in fourth. There were great results for the veteran Jakov Fack of Slovenia and Sebastian Stolder of Switzerland, both shooting 10 out of 10 and finishing in the top 10, perhaps refreshed by their trip to the World Team Challenge in Gelsenkirchen over Christmas. Martin Ponsoloma and Sebastian Samuelsson of Sweden both made the top 10 despite only shooting 8 out of 10, setting up a nice mix for the pursuit. In that pursuit, we saw the cream of Norway rising to the top. They occupied all of the top five places at the end, but you might not have predicted the order. It was a three-horse race at the start, with Benny Doll, Ligrid and Stromsheim out pretty much together, and Johannes calmly lurking in the background. So the four of them came in together for the first shoot. It was Doll who fell away, with three misses in that first shoot while all the Norwegians shot five out of five. Stromheim, the junior partner, was made to lead the way on the tracks. The others made him do the work in the wind. But he got his revenge, with some great, clear shooting in the second prone, where Ligrid missed one, and in the first stand, where Johannes missed. Honestly, Stromheim's first standing shoot was brutal and fast and full of swagger. And frankly, just like watching Bo. He had three targets down before Johannes had fired a shot. Behind them, Taye Bo and Johannes Dahlis Gerdal are moving up, as are Johannes Kuhn of Germany and Fabien Claude of France, who will work his way up from 28th place in the sprint to finish sixth. But it comes to Andre Stromsheim in the final shoot with a 25 second lead and this is the moment where you realise that the pressure placed on you by the competition is as nothing compared to the pressure you place on yourself. Stromsheim has a whole lap to think about this. And it's a wild shoot from him, with three out of five. But it's wild from Johannes, too, shooting just two, with some of the misses going off the TV screen. Ligrid, maybe? He shoots five out of five, and he's six seconds back behind Stromsheim coming into the final lap. Ligrid claws it back early and takes the lead. It's bold from him. Dale is flying behind them, so they can't hang around. We know that Stromsheim can race on adrenaline, but he's also showing some racecraft here, letting Ligrid back into it, then bursting away up one of the long, long hills, turning it on with about 800 metres to go and Stromsheim extends his advantage to 17 seconds at the end and is suitably delighted, and so am I. It's Stromsheim from Ligrid, from Dale, from Taye Bo, from Johannes, who was just spent coming out from all of those penalty loops. In the women's racing, the big favourites in the sprint went early to try and get the best of the conditions. The tracks had been prepared after the men's sprint, but were expected to fall apart again. The commentators were saying, quote, by the time we get to number 100, it will be ankle deep out there, and it will take a Goliath-like effort to produce a respectable ski time. It's windy on the range as well, so the good shooters could do well. So it's no surprise to see Germany's Franziska Preuss, Janina Hetich-Waltz and Vanessa Voigt shooting clear and competing for paces in the top 15. 
That really got the crowd involved. In fact, I kind of feel bad for the German women. Three shot clear, and yet they didn't win. Some other names to mention, Samuela Camola of Italy and Agna Magnussen of Sweden, demonstrating that 10 out of 10 will get you in the top 10 in a sprint in poor conditions. But this episode isn't about them. It's about the French women. Julia Simon came out in bib number two, perhaps looking a little fatigued, but still taking 11 seconds out of Rebecca Passler in the first kilometer. Elvira Erberg came out in bib six, Hannah Erberg at eight, and it was great to see Deidre Irwin of the United States wearing number 10 after her great performance in Lenzerheide. Julia Simon came into the range the first time with some discussion about her freshness, and she missed the last two shots. It was hard to know if that was a gust of wind or perhaps she was running out of breath. She's a fighter though, so she'll still be there or thereabouts if she can shoot eight out of 10. Julia's standing shoot is a thing of beauty, solid, fast, rhythmic, and slightly lost on the TV coverage. 21.6 seconds and not in doubt. She found some pace on the final lap too, so she set the early benchmark, taking more than 30 seconds out of Samuela Camola on the last lap alone. Justine Brezard-Boucher came out wearing number 20, and she's bouncing along the tracks. Another nugget from the commentary team is that Justine spent last year not only looking after her new baby, but also watching biathlon racing and studying the expressions and posture of her main competitors so she would know how they were feeling and performing on the track. And Justine? Well, she missed two in the prone as well, matching Julia. But she looked so fluent on her skis. Her standing shoot was a little less rhythmic, but no less accurate. Five out of five, and out 24 seconds behind the German leader, Preuss. She was chasing on the tracks. But 24 seconds to make up? She's doing it, isn't she? She's coming into the final straight, and she has this. She's taken the lead by four seconds. Astonishing speed. Lou Jeanne Minot came out wearing bib number 22 after missing a couple of races with illness and taking a break at Christmas. There were no expectations, but she came in seven seconds behind the lead time and shot a very measured five out of five in the prone. She's not afraid to take her time in the range although she did lose 12 seconds on the early leader, Preuss. Lou has some real racing wisdom already, and the shooting skills too. It's a five out of five on the stand, and she's out, not on pace with the German athletes, but 10 out of 10 nonetheless, and looking like she might hit the top 10. With the latest start numbers, you don't always see as much coverage on the TV, and they're starting as the early bibs are finishing. Remember, the tracks are deteriorating, the conditions are bad, and it's gusty in the range. Sophie Chaveau comes out at number 42. She came to our attention last year with a fourth place at Annecy Le Grand Bonnard, and she has the raw talent, but hasn't yet built the consistency. She misses one in her first standing shoot, her first shoot, excuse me, and we see her first in the standing shoot, where she hits five out of five, and comes out just 16 seconds off Brissard Boucher's time. How's she feeling out on the tracks? She's feeling good, clawing back time second by second, and she comes in just a fraction behind Preuss to take third place. 
it's not over yet. Jeanne Richard is starting at 61. She doesn't really get a mention early, even though she shoots 5 out of 5 in the prone. There's a lot going on, to be fair, and she's normally an IBU Cup racer, taking her opportunity here in the World Cup, perhaps as an audition for a place at the World Championships. We get to see her in a stand shoot, a left-hander. Her position looks super solid. She takes her time to allow for gusting wind. Struggles a little bit to get her poles back on again. But she looks so young and so happy as she heads out of the range and she sticks with it on the tracks, looking light and energetic, to come in eighth, just ahead of Jean Minot and Simon. And she even looks a little disappointed at the end. Ocean Misserlon started at 87. She's another racer from the IBU Cup. We see her coming into her prone shoot. She makes some adjustments, feels the breeze, adjusts again. She misses the first shot, but is calm and methodical and hits four. She hits four in her stand shoot as well, and comes in 28th, a great debut. So the results for the French? First, third, eighth, ninth, tenth, and 28th. Just astonishing. In the pursuit? Well, if you've listened to this podcast before, you'll know that I love the way that Julia Simon races pursuits. But she's starting in 10th, with some great races around and ahead of her. After just 600 metres, she has skied her way up into 6th place, and the others are trying to hang on. Out front, Breza Boucher is taking time out of Chavot and Preuss. It's weird, but you kind of know that Justine and Julia are racing each other, with a watchful eye over the Oberg sisters, perhaps. Justine shoots a steady 5 out of 5 while her nearest pursuers miss one each. Some of the next ranked racers, Elvira, Lisa Vitozzi, Hetich Waltz, Jean Monod, and the newcomer Jean Richard all shoot clear and gain time. Julia misses one, but that never seems to matter. On the second lap, Brezard Boucher has a 30 second lead, ahead of Elvira Erberg and a train of racers from 3rd to 9th all skiing together. Julia is 1 minute 9 seconds off the lead right now in 10th, but she's with Heike Gross and Tandrevold, who are attacking this very hard, so she doesn't need to do all of the work herself. After the second shoot, Justine is 10 out of 10 and in no rush. She's making sure of these. Elvira is 10 out of 10 and again working patiently to be certain. The chasers stay clear and Julia is coming. She's up to 7th. Chavot and Richard are clear to this point and still up there. Lou has missed one and dropped back to 12th. Midway through this lap and Julia is blasting her way around the tracks. She's up to third, stomping around like she's angry with the very ground beneath her feet. As Justine comes in for the first standing shoot, she has the place to herself, but you know that she's partly thinking about Elvira behind her and probably wondering where Julia is. It's one miss for Justine. It was fast and furious, but a high shot that just doesn't quite make it. Elvira goes more slowly, but misses one right. Julia shoots five out of five so quickly that the camera hasn't found her before she's left the range. Chavot, Vitozzi, Tandrevold all miss. Jean Richard shoots five, and so does Lou Jamino. Now it's Brésard Boucher with just a 10-second lead over Julia Simon. 
with the youngster Richard in third. She's shot clear to this point and is finding herself in a ski race with Elvira Erberg. Brezard Boucher has hit it hard on this lap, taking 10 more seconds out of Julia Simon early on to give herself almost a penalty loop advantage. It's all going to come down to the final shoot. Here comes Justine, and the shots drift, drift right and then left, and she misses two. Julia comes in and misses one. It all gets messy behind, but Lujamino hits five. Wow! There are slow skiers ahead of fast, so the race for third could go any direction. And it's Elvira Erberg and Tandrevold who are chasing hard. Tandrevold steals third ahead of Elvira. Jamino takes a great fifth. Brezard Boucher might have used all her resources, and Julia is made of determination in moments like this, and she's going to battle all the way. Julia Simon takes it, with Brezard Boucher second, Lou Jamino in fifth, Richard hanging on for ninth, and Chavot in thirteenth. Just ridiculous from the French women once again. The success of the French women got me to thinking about other amazing examples, so I thought I'd share some, some short words about legendary femme, some more famous than others. First, Marie Gouge, better known as Olympe de Gouge. She was a butcher's daughter from the south of France, who found her way into the literary and political hotbed of the French Revolution. Angered by the omission of women from the Declaration of the Rights of Men, she wrote a 1791 response, the Declaration of the Rights of Women and the Female Citizen. It was a radical document which explicitly said that women and men were equal under God and nature, and that they should therefore be equal under the law and society. This was a two-way street for de Gouge. It meant that women should receive the same rights as men and the same opportunities, but also carry the same responsibilities, such as paying tax. She particularly called out the sexual exploitation of women by men through prostitution, marriage and abandonment. Marie was ultimately executed by the revolutionary government when she spoke out against its increasing violence. Hubertine Auclair Hubertine was a militant feminist of the late 19th century. She founded the Society for the Rights of Women in 1876. The Society then launched a feminist newspaper, La Citoyenne, in 1881. She tried to stand as a candidate in the municipal elections and then organised protests against women's lack of vote through the destruction of ballots. She also wrote extensively about women's experiences elsewhere in the world, particularly in France's then colonies, which was a radical global outlook for her time. Next up, Marie Mavink, one of my favourites. As well as my nerdiness about biathlon, I'm also fascinated by the very early days of flight. Marie Marvinkt was many things. A champion shot, bobsledder, a mountaineer, a long-distance swimmer, a cyclist. In 1910, refused permission to compete in the Tour de France, she got on her bike and followed the men, completing the course, something which only one-third of the male competitors managed to do that year. Her real love was flying, though from becoming the first woman to pilot a hot air balloon across the channel, to being a champion pilot and racer, to conducting secret bombing missions in World War I. Her main legacy was the idea of using airplanes as instruments of aid, not destruction. She first tried to create an air ambulance service in 1909, 
helped organize the first International Congress on Medical Aviation. Once air ambulances were in use, Marvink established the first medical air service in Morocco and became the first certified flight nurse. And even despite her love of all the risky things in the world, she lived to be 88 years old. Lastly, Simone Weil. Unless you're French, this is one of those names that you know, but you don't know why. Simone was just 16 and on her way to celebrate finishing high school in Nice when, in 1944, she was stopped by the Gestapo. She had fake ID, but they still identified her as Jewish and sent her to a concentration camp. She avoided death by lying about her age. Surviving the war, she came to Paris and enrolled in law school before embarking on a career in politics. She was Minister for Health when she led the administrative changes to legalise abortion in France, then Minister of State, then the first female President of the European Parliament. Viol is just the fifth woman to be buried at the Pantheon in Paris. And what about the women of biathlon? Well, France has created a steady supply of female athletes. I talked about their Olympic relay squad from 1992, the first time that women competed in biathlon in the Olympics, in episode 20 of this podcast called Game Changers. After that group, we had names like Sandrine Bailey, Marie Dorano Bear, and Anais Biscond, women who won world championships and Olympic medals, and challenged for World Cup success too. Perhaps the difference right now is that there is a steady and growing contingent of female athletes coming through. We didn't know Lou Jamino or Sophie Chavot a year ago, and we've only just welcomed Jeanne Richard and Ocean Michelot into the World Cup. This, in addition to seeing multiple athletes, Anaisha Vallier-Boucher and Justine Brézard-Boucher particularly, returned from maternity leave to great success. I wonder if the lack of a megastar has been beneficial. If you've had a Martin Foucault, then perhaps you're always looking for the next one. Norway had Ole Einar Bjorndalen, and then they got Johannes tingis Bow. France had Foucault, and then perhaps thought that Jacqueline or Fillon-Mayet would automatically build on their successes and become dominant in the same way. I don't think that stops investment in wider talent, but perhaps the more distributed success amongst the French women has, to coin a phrase, encouraged les autres. That distributed success may also lead to sharing joy in achievements. On the men's side, just look at Johannes Tinger's bow after the relative disappointment of shooting 16 out of 20 and finishing fifth in a pursuit last weekend. He's smiling. He's happy for his teammates who have beaten him. It's obviously easy to be happy when your bad day is a fifth place, but there's something about the shared energy and collective joy of the Norwegian men. And it's the same with the French women, a celebration of each other's achievements. We saw it last year with the squad achieving good results in specific meetings. Even when there are personal ructions and bad relationships, shared achievement is powerful. And we've seen that with the French and Italian women's teams when there are fairly well-publicised rifts. I absolutely acknowledge that I have a pro-France bias and it comes from watching Martin Foucault. I loved the way he raced. His absolute control of the final shoot in any race was incredible. And I kind of thought that that sort of individual domination was just natural. But it turns out that there is a different satisfaction from watching a squad developing over time. The French women have found that sweet spot right now, 
and I'm thrilled for them. This week, everyone has caught the bus to Rupolding. There's snow, and the temperatures are below zero, so conditions should be a bit friendlier than they were in Oberhof. The schedule for this week, on Wednesday the 10th of January at 1.30 UK time, we have the women's relay. On Thursday the 11th of January at, I've written 12.10, but I think my note might be wrong, so it might be 13.10, we have the men's relay. Thursday lunchtime, men's relay. Friday the 12th of January at 13.30, we have the women's sprint. Saturday the 13th of January at 13.30, we have the men's sprint. On Sunday the 14th of January at 11.30 in the morning UK time, we have the women's pursuit. And on Sunday 14th of January at 1.45 in the afternoon, the men's pursuit. So who to watch? Well, Rupolding is a place where people can shoot really well. Last year's results were dominated by people who shot clear or just missed one. I am going to ban myself from mentioning French women here, so let us keep an eye on Tandrevold, who's going to bounce back to early season form, Lena Heike Gross, who still has the ski speed. How about the two German women, Preuss and Voigt, who have been amazing on the range? They just need a couple of extra percentage points on speed or some mishaps by others to claim a victory. And let's not forget Hannah Erberg, especially in a pursuit. On the men's side, well, it's all to play for among the Norwegians, uh, with Stromsheim growing in confidence, Ligrid and Tayebo performing consistently at a high level, Christensen returning, and Johannes Tingestbo still able to demolish the field on his day. If you look past Norway, you find Benny Doll and the other Germans waiting in the wings, especially in the sprints. And for the pursuit, let's see if Seb Samuelsson of Sweden can find his form again. One last thing. I've celebrated some awesome French women in this episode. So, for balance, here's a terrible one. She has nothing to do with biathlon. Her name was Catherine Monvoisin, otherwise known as La Voisin. She was married to a silk merchant and jeweller, whose business turned sour, so she took to fortune-telling and midwifery to make ends meet. She also turned her hand to selling magical items, lotions and potions, and her clients included many aristocratic and high-end families. Her practice grew, and soon she ran a network of fortune-tellers and potion-sellers. She then saw an opportunity to make a bit more money by offering people help with their problems through the provision of magical services, including black masses in which people would pray to Satan for their wishes to come true. It's good to diversify, I guess. Lotions and potions turned to poisons, and she became embroiled in a plot to kill King Louis XIV. That particular plot couldn't be proved, although the truth did emerge later. But she and her network, when when charged, allegedly named more than 400 high-profile clients for their services. La Voisin was tried for witchcraft and executed by burning in 1680, one of the last women to be executed for witchcraft in France. Thank you for listening. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with links to all sorts of background information and sources at skishootrepeat.podgeen.com. 
Let's try that again. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with links to all sorts of background information and sources, at skishootrepeat.podbean.com. Please do follow us on X at skishootrepeat and on Instagram, skishootrepeat. Do get in touch and let me know what's right and what's wrong. This podcast uh, this week is built more on wine than on anything else. So, hey, it was a bit blurry. It's fine. Uh, Let me know what you'd like to hear in future episodes. And I'll be back after the racing and roop holding with a bit of a review and looking forward to the next week of racing. Thank you for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. I've been Lizzie Boyle.